We continue our discussion of Jesus Christ and his triumphal entry. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome back to our lesson number 20 on Matthew chapter 21 through 23, Mark 11, Luke 19 and 20, and John chapter 12. This is our second podcast on this lesson. His first act. Now, this is, this is so already we're, we're seeing some theater, but this is where the theater comes in even more dramatically. So if, if you remember that Jesus has already cleansed the temple once, but now Jesus goes into the temple and he overturns the money changers' tables. And he also, in, in the first time, he, drew, he drove out the animals. This time he overturns the doves, the tables of those selling doves. A couple of things to note about the cleansing of the temple. First of all, the doves were the animals that poor people bought because they couldn't afford lambs or bullocks. And so the chief priests were taking advantage not only of everyone who came to worship, but especially of the poor. And those are the ones that Jesus first, or whose suffering Jesus first took steps to remedy. Second of all, Caiaphas, um, the, the leader of the Sanhedrin, he had recently moved, we learn this from other sources, not scriptural ones, that he had recently moved the place where this business was done to within the temple itself. So the tradition was that people couldn't pay for their offerings. They're not going to bring their offering animals from home. That would be too much trouble to carry. So what they do is they bring money, but the temple won't accept their impure money. It was They claimed that it was a form of ritual impurity if they did that. So what they wanted was temple money. Well, if you wanted temple money, you had to go to money changers. And they had this horrible rate of exchange. And Caiaphas was the one who controlled this. So here's the problem. This is sort of, in my opinion, this is sort of a mixture between uh, organized religion and organized crime. This is this is Caiaphas giving the veneer of legitimacy to robbery. He's taking the money from people who have to worship, and he's forcing them to pay exorbitant prices for things that are commonly available like animals. And it's happening right in the temple. This is what has got Jesus so upset. So obviously he has a legitimate reason for doing it, and he is... Uh, but he is also making a point through a public spectacle. And that is, that is why I'm saying that this is theater. So this is what Isaiah, this, this tradition goes back. This is what Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and others, they all did this. Um, Hosea even married, he was, he was commanded to marry a prostitute and bear children with her because Israel had been so unfaithful to God. So this object lesson is happening again. Jesus is saying, you're a den of thieves, and he's treating them like thieves. At the same time, he's also acting exactly like a king. He walks into the temple as if he owns the place. This is what a king would do, is the king would say, this is unacceptable behavior, I'm in charge, and so I'm going to straighten out the issue. Now, the interesting thing is this, nobody dares to stand against him, he's one man. And Jesus, I mean, I'm sure he was an imposing figure, personally. However, we, we learn later on that armed soldiers are perfectly cap- capable of arresting him and taking him cap- captive. So why didn't they on this occasion? And it's because the crowd behind him sees him as a king, and Jesus then immediately commences acting like one. He takes this role, and he runs with it. He makes the most of it. He absolutely makes it clear that he considers it to be his legitimate role by going into the temple. This would be the equivalent of me saying, having, having uh, a following that, that loved my political posts, let's say, online. And one day, I, you know, I, I start a ground roots campaign, a march on Washington, and instead of stopping in the National Mall, I take my crowd with me 
into the congressional chamber and I start debating in Congress and kicking out all the Congress people and I use and I take my followers and we start passing laws. This that is exactly how provocative it is. Jesus is taking over the government and not the government the, not the province of the Romans themselves, but the government, the self-government of the Jews to the extent that they are self-governed. The, their religious self-government, he has absolutely taken it over. So that is the context in which the next few uh, exchanges occur. So then Jesus has these teachings uh, that later in chapter 21, he goes right into some parables. Um, first, I want to say about the cleansing. So he quotes uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, where Jeremiah was often in the temple and often saying things like, um, "This is my, my father's house is a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. At the time of that teaching, what he was saying was, you think the temple is going to protect you. You're all saying that this temple, because we have the temple here, God won't allow us to be destroyed. And if and my message to you is, if you think that's the case, go look at Shiloh, because Shiloh used to be the place of where the tabernacle was housed, and now it's a wasteland. It's been utterly destroyed because they were unrighteous. So the temple won't protect you. Jeremiah said this over and over again, knowing that they would not listen. And Jesus has, uh, he has prophesied the same thing. If you remember early in the book of John, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up again. Now John then made the aside that he was talking about the temple of his body. But Jesus has on various occasions prophesied that Israel, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thy house shall be left unto you desolate. And um, in the in the 70s AD is the first of two revolts. The second one occurred about 60 years later. One, Jerusalem was mostly destroyed, and the second one, uh, Jerusalem was fully destroyed, completely destroyed in the Bar Kokhba revolt. Now, it's interesting, this is just a side note, if you've ever been to Rome, uh, right near the, the Roman Colosseum, you can enter what's called the Roman Forum, and those are the ruins of the ancient Roman Forum, the ancient Roman city, and the, the imperial palace, Caesar's dwelling, and there's an arch there called the Arch of Titus, and up underneath that arch, if you look underneath it, you can actually still see the carving of uh, Roman soldiers carrying a bunch of valuables, and one of those valuables looks exactly like a menorah. That's because Titus was the emperor that, uh, that conquered Jerusalem in the 70s AD, and those treasures, that they, the loot that they got from Jerusalem was actually what funded the construction of the Roman Colosseum. So it was the plunder of Jerusalem that funded a lot of the ruins that we still see in Rome today. Quite a fascinating uh, fact. Um, in any case, that was Jeremiah chapter 7 that Jesus was quoting, but it also comes from Isaiah 56. When, when Isaiah 56 is the beginning of the last 11 chapters of Isaiah where Isaiah starts to say, uh, he starts to talk about the latter days when the gospel will be extended not just to the Jews, but to everyone. And in Isaiah 56, he says that the, the stranger and the eunuch, these outcasts, these, these, this class of people that has never been acceptable in the temple, they will be given a place and a name that is better than sons and daughters. So G Jesus is now starting to enact this change. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, what form that took when we go back to John chapter 12. The next thing that Jesus does is he talks about the parable of the two sons. One son, uh, there's a father who tells his, both of his sons to go work, and one son says, no, I won't do it, and then does. And the other son says, yes, I will do it, and does not. So again, he's just like the, the fig tree that should bear fruit that doesn't, he's showing the, he's showing the chief priests and the scribes exactly what kind of a nation they've been and how God sees, he's showing them a mirror that they can see themselves in God's eyes. And once they realize, it's only after the fact on each of these statements that they realize what Jesus is doing, and then they're extremely insulted. 
after the parable of the two sons, then Jesus says, whoever abaseth himself shall be exalted, and whoever exalteth himself shall be humbled. This is the ultimate expression of the idea of the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So Jesus reiterates that idea, such an important theme throughout all of the Gospels at the start of Holy Week. Um, now Jesus tells this story of the husbandman and the Lord of the vineyard. Now see if you recognize any of the elements of this story. He starts telling a story about a man who wants to receive fruit, and so he builds a wall, he, he fertilizes and plows and tills the ground, he prepares the ground, and then he builds a watchtower. And then he sets some servants over the, the functioning of this vineyard, and he wants to gather himself fruit against the season. Jesus is very, he's, he's not only evoking the, the memory of Isaiah 5, he's almost quoting it directly. So this is, this is Jesus bringing forth this well-understood image from Isaiah, but then he changes it a little bit. And instead of it's rotten fruit, these, it's the farmers that are rotten. Now, it's obvious that Jesus is talking, again, that this becomes clear to the Pharisees after he's done talking, uh, the chief priests and the scribes. But he talks, the parable is that they never give the, the owner of the land, they never give him the fruit. He keeps sending servants and they kill him. They kill them. And finally, he says, they'll, they'll respect my son. So he sends his son, and they kill him. And this is, this is absolutely just totally irrational behavior. The point is, the, Jesus asked them, what should the Lord of the vineyard do? And <laughs> the chief priests and the scribes, they say, well, of course, you, the, the Lord of the vineyard should show up and he should exact justice. Now remember, at the end of Isaiah 5, that's exactly what Isaiah said that God would do. He was looking for justice, and he found injustice. He was looking for mishpat, he found mispach. And he was looking for tzedakah, and he found tzedakah. He was looking for righteousness, and he found a cry. So he, when Jesus asked these chief priests and scribes, what should the Lord of the vineyard do? They say, Oh, he should go there and remove them and install some servants who will actually give him his fruit. And so what Jesus is saying is, I will have my fruit. They have told him that he should have his fruit, which is justice. And uh, in other words, they've totally sanctioned the, the judgment against themselves. If you remember, there was a similar episode when um, David has slept with Bathsheba and then sent Uriah off to his death. Then Nathan the prophet arrives, and he gives him this parable, and he says, what should the man who, who killed this, this one poor farmer's, his, own, his only little lamb, what should happen to that man? And David says, verily, I will require his life of him. And then Nathan says, you've prescribed your own penalty. Well, it's a similar thing happening here. Jesus has given them a parable in which they are, are a central figure, and he's asked them what should be done, and they say, they should face justice, and that is one of the fruits that God wanted from his vineyard. And Jesus says, you are, yes, you're right. They should face justice. And then they perceive that he's talking about them. This really, really humiliates them and makes them upset. Um, he gives, then he gives, Jesus gives the uh, parable of the wedding feast. The king, his, his son is getting married and he's invited everyone to the feast. And again, a clear parable of the, the Pharisees. They were the ones invited to the feast. They're the religious leaders of all of Judaism, but they will not come when the time comes. So Jesus says, invite, invite everyone else. Um, and we've talked about a similar parable already, so we won't go into too many details there. But then the, then the Pharisees arrive and they say, look, they're trying to trap him. And they start with flattery. And Jesus, there's nothing Jesus that annoys him more than hypocrisy. So they come to him and they say, good master, we know that you'd never say anything against the law. You always have the best answers. And uh, then they say, what should we do? Should we pay these taxes? What should we do with this, uh, this law that we have to pay tribute? And so Jesus calls them hypocrites because he knows they're, they're flattering him and he's not putting up with it. 
But then he says, show me the money. And they bring forth one, a denarius, as it says, or a penny uh, in English. And uh, he looks at the denarius. He says, whose image is on there? What do you see? And they say, Caesar's. And he gives this brilliant response, which is, give unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. They are so confounded by this response that they, they can't continue their line of questioning. So the, the, now it's the Sadducees that come up and challenge Jesus. They take their opportunity, and they pose him this question of the, of the, uh, the woman who's married to seven brothers. Uh, the Jewish custom was, if, you're, if your husband died childless, then the brother was uh, called upon to marry his brother's widow and raise up children to, his, to receive, to inherit his brother's estate so that that estate would not go somewhere else, be lost. It was very important to continue a house, as it was known, um, the progeny that they could uh, keep these estates, keep these inheritances intact over the generations. And so the second brother dies and the third brother dies, and eventually all seven of these brothers have to marry the, the woman because none of them have children with her. They ask him who will have this who will be married to her in the resurrection? Now, it's an ironic question because the Sadducees don't, uh, don't believe in resurrection. In fact, the Sadducees are to Judaism writ large as the Christians later will be, uh, as the Jews themselves will be to the Christians later on, which is to say the Sadducees believed in a subset of the scriptures that the, the Pharisees believed in. They only believed in the five books of Moses. So just like the, uh, the Jews don't believe in the scriptures that the Christians would later have, but the Christians believed in the Jewish scriptures plus their own, the Pharisees, the Sadducees didn't, believed, didn't believe in the, all of the writings of the, of the Hebrew prophets. They only believed in the five books of Moses. And the Pharisees believed in the scriptures of the Sadducees plus their own. So Jesus knows exactly how to deal with the Sadducees because um, he, he counters to them. First, first he addresses their question, which is, uh, and, and you can, this is, a, there have been many Latter-day prophets, you can look this up, who have interpreted what Jesus says here as, as regards um, eternal marriage. But the point is that um, once the resurrection has occurred, Men and women are not given in marriage. The, the time for that is before the resurrection. But uh, I encourage you to read this if you're confused about what it might mean. Um, read it in Luke as well as in Matthew because there is a little bit of difference in the wording used and it's enlightening. Um, in any case, he spots their hypocrisy. They're asking a question about something they don't even believe in. So Jesus gets right to the point, and using scriptures, they accept. He goes right to Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. And this is where Moses is uh, talking to God through the burning bush, and Moses calls God, calls Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus, um, I mean, knowing, obviously, Jesus knows everything, uh, so he knows exactly how to spot the flaw in their entire philosophy. Nevertheless, it, we have to just sit back and be stunned about how brilliant it is because uh, he says, Moses. so they accept Moses as a prophet, the Sadducees do. In fact, he's one of the only prophets. They see that the hand of God only very infrequently appearing on the earth. Mostly God sits back and watches. Only occasionally does he intervene, but Moses is one of the cases where he did. And so Jesus goes straight to Moses and he says, Moses called Jehovah the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet we know that God is the God of the living and not the dead. So how can you say that there is no resurrection? If the dead, ri- if the dead don't rise, then Moses was wrong. Now the Sadducees have no response. He, ha- he has completely shut them up by what he said. They, ha- they are so stumped in, in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if this was the, the beginning of the end of their entire sect because uh, they, they have no response to Jesus' argument to the point where they just withdraw. And the, the Pharisees are, 
also stunned to see that the Sadducees have been so effectively shut down. And so they then come forward and they try their own um, they try their own tactic against Jesus. One, one of the things that I've neglected to mention, so earlier uh, when, the, when the chief priests and scribes tried to get Jesus to shut down the, um, the mob proclaiming him as the Messiah, he, he says this phrase that, has been, that will then be repeated three times in Matthew chapter 21, which is, have you never read? Right? So um, when they, there are even children, when Jesus, by the time Jesus reaches the temple mount, even children are saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord from the 118th Psalm. And the, the chief priests and scribes are trying to get Jesus to shut it down. And uh, Jesus says, Have you never read that out of the mouth of babes you have perfected praise? Um, so he's saying to them, uh, have, you never, have you never read the scriptures? Basically means, have you, haven't you read the Bible? And these are people who's living their entire job. Their purpose of being on earth is to read the Bible. And so Jesus is basically showing them that they don't understand the scriptures at all. Again and again, he does this. So when the Sadducees challenge him, he says in, uh, in chapter, this is now in chapter 22 of Matthew, but chapter 22, verse 31, he says, Have you not read? You, you don't understand the scriptures, Sadducees, he says a couple of verses earlier. And then he says, Have you not read that uh, Moses called Abraham, uh, Jehovah the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Now, the way that Jesus ties this to the, to the Pharisees is after he tells the parable of the, of the husbandman and the Lord of the vineyard, uh, he says to them, they, they still don't understand the the um, application of the parable. And he says, haven't you ever read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected? That stone has become the head of the corner or the chief cornerstone. So uh, again, this is language from the 118th Psalm, which would have been currently being read in the temple as they were speaking, you know, possibly even that very psalm. So Jesus is quoting the scriptures that's going on right in the temple, and he's saying, haven't you heard that there would be, and, and so just imagine, right, um, first of all, uh, Herod the Great had built the Temple Mount maybe 40 years before, 50 years before, and uh, the temple had a chief cornerstone, the Temple Mount, and they're called Herodian stones. They can be seen there to this day. They're identified by that little border maybe less than an inch in width. Um, and it's almost like a, a routing edge that you would put on a piece of wood, but the stone is carved in the stones. The Herodian stones are several times larger than the, than the Turkish stones that are placed above them in the walls of the Temple Mount. And so at the bottom, for example, at the Western Wall, where you see the Jews gather to pray, that's the bottom of the wall around the Temple Mount. And at the, the first few layers are Herodian stones. And over to the right of the western wall, the far edge, um, is, the, is the chief cornerstone. It would have been placed at the very bottom. It's probably a 350-ton stone. The point is, this stone, not only does it, is it the one that people are going to interact the most with because it's at their eye level, they're going to walk by it, but it also has to be the strongest because it's going to hold the weight of all the layers, and it's probably uh, over 100 feet uh, of stone above it, several thousand tons that it's supporting. So the, the builders, the stonemasons, are going to look at the stones that they're going to put, and they're going to choose the best one to be the chief cornerstone, that one that would be right at the corner of the Temple Mount itself. And... Uh, you can imagine them saying, all right, this one looks like it's not going to withstand that weight. We're going to reject it. However, so we don't know why they rejected it, and we don't know why later they changed their mind and how that chief cornerstone or that rejected stone became the chief cornerstone. But the point is, Jesus is, he's bringing in Psalm 118, but he's also bringing in uh, 
Isaiah chapter 8, where he talks about the stone of stumbling or the rock of offense. And he's bringing in Daniel chapter 2, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, where a stone is cut out of the mountain without hands and rolls down until it smashes the the beastly or the the mortal arrangements of men, the governments of men on the earth. And so here Jesus is saying, I'm the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, smashing you, this, uh, this idol arranged of all these earthly materials, this mixture of materials, and smashing it into pieces, into dust. Um, this is very clear language that he's using, and he's saying, haven't you? So in one stroke, Jesus is tying together 118th Psalm, Isaiah chapter 8, Dan, Daniel chapter 2, as well as Isaiah 5. He's tied them all together. And he's insulted the the uh, the fair, the chief priests and the scribes by saying, "Have you never read your scriptures again?" So he said it now three times: once to the Sadducees, once to the Pharisees, and once to the chief priests and scribes when they told him to silence the crowd. He's telling them, "You don't understand the scriptures." Over and over and over. So uh, the the parable of the husbandman husbandman and the Lord of the vineyard is in Matthew chapter twenty one. The Sadducees challenge him in chapter 22. As soon as he silences the Sadducees, then the Pharisees come forward to have their chance. And so he's told the Sadducees that um, Jehovah was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now he tells the Pharisees, what do you think of Christ? Now this is is an off-quoted phrase. What think ye of Christ? Um, In our day... It's used as a question, what do we think about Jesus? The way Jesus meant it was, what do you you think of this Old Testament idea of the Messiah? So what think ye of Christ means, what do you think about the Messiah when he comes? You know, this right now is an abstract concept. Whose son is he? And the Pharisees answer Jesus and say, the son of David. And this is what the crowd has been calling Jesus all day, thou son of David. Hosanna, thou son of David. So then Jesus says to them, then why does David call Messiah Lord? And he quotes a scripture again. And this is again from the Psalms. So if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? That question silences the Pharisees. And uh, in the final final verse of Matthew chapter 22, it says, no man was able to answer him a word neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. So they'd been trying the entirety of Jesus's ministry to, to get, to trip him up by asking him questions about the law. They thought they understood the law better than Jesus himself, the author of the law. Finally, Jesus shows them so, so unequivocally that he's the one who understands the law to the point where they can't even talk anymore. Now, I love that we're now covering Matthew chapter 23. We won't go into too many of the details that are here. But you've heard, I'm sure, many times the phrase, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So the first thing that Jesus does is he teaches them that they don't understand the scripture at all. The second thing he does is he silences them one group at a time. Now, in Matthew chapter 23, it's as if he has... um, if, if this fight were physical rather than verbal, you would say he's knocked them down, and now he's kicking them while they're, while they're on the ground. And that sounds a little bit cruel, and maybe that's not an uh, appropriate metaphor. However, uh, it's, it's because G- Jesus has already said, God sent me into the world to bear witness of the truth. So his mission is to expose hypocrisy and lies, especially when it comes from those who are professing to be religious leaders. And so Jesus cannot, he can show mercy to people, but he cannot show mercy to hypocrisy and ideas that cause people to leave the truth. It's counter to his very mission. And so he has to be merciless where, I mean, he's merciful towards people, but he's merciless towards lies of Satan. He cannot afford to be otherwise. So again, over and over again, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! And so one of the things that he says is you, you make it so hard 
to enter the kingdom of heaven, you, you have all of these requirements, all of these onerous burdens to bear in order to get there. You've, you've put such a hedge around the law that nobody can fulfill all of it. And yet you yourselves, you don't do it. And then over and over again, he gives tons of examples about how they care about form over substance. They'll pay a tithing of their, of their spices, but then they'll omit the, the weightier matter, matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. And again and again, he exposes the fact that they only care about how they appear, and they don't actually care about what they really do and how what their uh, righteousness, right? The, this relationship, these right relationships with God, that's missing. He's again and again, he's exposing the fact that they are a barren garden. There's more than just Isaiah 5, by the way, uh, over and over again in the Hebrew scriptures. Hosea chapter 2 is another example. Habakkuk 3. Um, these, are, these are chapters where uh, the prophets are talking about, they've gotten this imagery from God that there's a barren garden that isn't bearing fruit, and the fruit is righteousness. The fruit is tzedakah. The fruit are these right right relationships with God and between men. That That's all God wants from man. The, the purpose of creating the world and the purpose of anointing Israel as a light unto the nations was to receive this fruit, and Israel is over and over again is proven to be a barren garden. And here he is saying it again and again. You aren't giving, you aren't providing righteousness, and righteousness is the fruit. And then at the end, he ties it all back to his parable of the the husbandman and the vineyard. Now I'm reading from Matthew 23, 34. Behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. So, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets. Now I'm in uh, verse 37. And stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. So, Jesus is now prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, and he's saying it's because you cannot give God his fruit. You are a barren garden. And he that is why he had this tremendous object lesson of the withering of the fig tree on his way into Jerusalem. Now we return to John chapter 12. So I mentioned the anointing of Solomon as he was crowned on the day of his coronation in the beginning of 1 Kings. Uh, right before he got on his father, King David's donkey, and rode it into Jerusalem to much the same scene as Jesus has just witnessed. Um, so let's return to the, the reason that Jesus gave, gave for Mary to anoint him, and that was that uh, she has anointed me against my burial. And... Uh, Jesus right now is starting to tie together. He's saying what he's saying is, you don't understand the way that I, what the kind of Messiah that I am. He's all along he's been trying to prepare his disciples for the idea that his burial or his death is the moment at which he assumes the royal kingship over all of Israel and indeed all of humanity. So when he is anointed, the anointing of of Solomon was his ascension to the throne, and yet Jesus is anointed unto his burial. It's the same moment. Then Jesus says, so now we're going to skip. John actually has his own account uh, of of Jesus' triumphal entry, but we'll skip that because it largely parallels what we've already read. We'll skip to verses, uh, let's say, we'll skip to verse 20 in John chapter 12. Now, now here's something really interesting. In John chapter 12, John is showing us that the Passover has become a, a very cosmopolitan sort of festival. So in the city, first of all, Jerusalem, archaeologists tell us, was probably a city of about 50,000 people. But around the time of the yearly Passover, 
that number would have swelled to perhaps as many as 200,000 people. People from all over the country have come. And as we see, all over the region as well. So in verse 20, uh, we learn that there were certain Greeks that came up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip. And they say they said to Philip, look, we're, uh, I heard you're a disciple of Jesus. We would, we would like to meet him. And Philip come, cometh, uh, we're in verse 22 of John 12, Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. And again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. So I don't know if you remember, but in John chapter 1, now, now recall we've described John chapter 1 as a place where all of these ideas have their first manifestation and then later on they're fleshed out. So what happened in John chapter 1 but that one of the disciples believed and he went and got his brother and he said, come and see. But what was happening then was it was one Jew, and in fact Jesus describes uh, this disciple coming, he said, here is an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. And I explained at the time what he meant by that. The point is, these were all Jews. And now we have the Greeks coming in. This is why I brought up Isaiah chapter 56. So the, the prophecy is that when the last days, when the final fulfillment of all of these things start to happen, that strangers, foreigners, and eunuchs will begin to take a place among the believers in the temple. And here are believers in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover on the Temple Mount asking the disciples of Jesus if they can see Jesus and meet the Christ. And what Philip and Andrew say is, come and see. So here's a, here's a fulfillment of something, a promise that was made in John chapter 1, and we're seeing it being fleshed out, right? We're seeing that Jesus is not only the fulfillment of all of the Jewish expectations, but now he's fulfilling the later prophecies of Isaiah that would have all the nations of the earth flow unto Jerusalem. And now Jesus starts to prophesy about his death, and he says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now this is Daniel 7 language. The Son of Man being glorified is what happens when The one who appears like the Son of Man, a mortal man, is raised up alongside of God and given all judgment. And they're getting excited. They're thinking, great, you've just had your triumphal entry. Everyone's about to get behind you. Let's turn this into a uh, a military and political movement, the way we've all expected it to be, the way you've led us to expect this to be, Uh, which, you know, is not actually true. Jesus has not led them to believe anything that isn't going to happen. He's been trying to counter this expectation his entire ministry. But now Jesus says in verse 24, if, if, a, if a bunch of wheat falls to the, doesn't fall to the ground and die, then it can't reproduce and become more wheat. It's going to, if it doesn't die, it abideth alone. But if it dies, it brings forth fruit. Again, this idea of bringing forth fruit. Um, So he that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. This seems so paradoxical to them. They cannot grasp it. He's telling them, I've got to die because that is the reason that I live. The whole point of my, I, I do not take my throne until I die and am resurrected. Now, in verse 28, Jesus hears the voice of God. Uh, there, then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So, uh, and Jesus gives a little precursor of his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. In verse 27, he says, Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. And so he already sees the paradox. He, he's dreading the suffering that is to come. And yet he knows that it's the whole point of why he's there. There are witnesses that hear the voice of God. And Jesus says, look, it wasn't for my sake that, that God spoke out loud. It was for yours. Because God is always within me. He's always talking to me. He also said this, if you recall, uh, at the raising of Lazarus from the dead, he thanked God that he heard him. And then he said, look, I'm, I'm not saying that because you don't hear me all the time. I'm saying it so that everyone can hear me and know that you've heard me and that you always hear me. So 
in the one instance, Jesus is saying, God, you always hear me. And now Jesus is saying, God, I always hear you. I don't need you to talk out loud, and I don't need to talk out loud. You and I are in constant communication. The point of this message is to show how devastating it must have been for Jesus to be left alone. Because by this time, Jesus has the constant companionship of God the Father. He is always in mental communication, and they are indeed one, in a sense that you and I can't even fathom, because they're, they're always in close emotional and spiritual contact. Now, Jesus uses more Daniel 7 language in verse 32 when he says, um, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Now, John gives us another little aside, and he says, This he said, signifying what death he should die. But it's important that we understand. So Jesus was saying, I'll be lifted up. We read that, and we think immediately crucifixion. But what they heard was, I'll be lifted up. And and this is why I asked you last week to read Daniel chapter 7. Because the Son of Man is lifted up next to the Ancient of Days and glorified. So that's what they're expecting. Jesus is saying, I'll be lifted up, and they're hearing the the Son of Man lifted up. Great. You're going to be given all judgment and power. So we don't know what message you've heard from God, but obviously it means that you're going to be victorious. And this is what we've come to expect from the Messiah. And what Jesus is actually telling them is, I'm going to be lifted. When I'm lifted up, when I'm given this judgment, I'm lifted up on the cross. So you have read Daniel chapter 7. You've interpreted it one way. And what I'm telling you is the way that that lifting up happens is through death. Death and crowning, death and coronation, for me, in my particular mission, are the same event. It's a totally unfathomable concept to them. And Jesus tries and tries and tries to tell them that my death equals my glorification. And now John gives us his testimony about this message of Jesus. So that this testimony begins in verse 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet, or Isaiah, might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, if you recognize this language, this is from the beginning of Isaiah chapter 53, perhaps what many consider to be the most messianic of all the chapters of the Hebrew scriptures. But this particular passage is, who got it? Nobody nobody believes the report of the Messiah. Nobody believes him when he says exactly what his uh, his mission is. Because um, Isaiah said again, now you may or may not recognize this language. Uh, Verse 40 of John 12, he's quoting Isaiah. He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. This is language from Isaiah chapter 6. You remember, Isaiah was called into the, throne, into the temple, which became the throne room of Jehovah, and he saw the glory of God, and he was given this calling that he should make the heart of the people fat, that they should not be able to see and be converted, that God should heal them. So what, what John has done on purpose is to, die, is to tie the vision of, Isaiah, uh, of Jehovah in all of his glory with the vision of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Now stick with me for a minute. I'm going to explain this. So in Isaiah 53, the sufferings of Jehovah's servant are explained that he, uh, he has no form or comeliness that men should desire him. And we esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. And he's smitten with our iniquities and with his stripes we are healed. In other words, he suffers for us. So this is John tying those two visions, those two personages together. And in fact, the vision of Isaiah 53 actually begins in Isaiah, the last part of Isaiah 52. Now, there's a particular phrase that I think uh, is worth drawing attention to, and it occurs only twice in the entire Old Testament, and they're both in the book of Isaiah, and it just so happens that they are in these two passages. 
So Isaiah is in the th- in the throne room of God. He sees Jehovah on his throne, and he uses the words lofty and exalted, or high and exalted, depending on the translation. The Hebrew is Ram Vinissa, high and exalted, lofty and exalted. I saw God on his throne. This is used only other one other place, and that's the last part of Isaiah fifty-two. The servant of God is is Ram Vinissa. He's high and exalted. And then it talks about how he is not esteemed by anyone, or he's not understood. Who has received our report? Who would believe that this person is actually high and exalted? No one. In fact, he is cut off from the land of the living. This is very clear language that he will be killed. But then it says, when he has shown his seed, then he will see that all of mankind is redeemed because of him. So his death and resurrection are clearly foretold in Isaiah 53. The problem is no one will believe it as foretold by Isaiah. And here is John bearing a powerful testimony of that fact, saying, We could have known, if we had understood our Isaiah, we could have known that Jesus would die and be resurrected, and that Jesus was Jehovah if we'd only been paying attention. But there's no way we could have, because Isaiah prophesied that it wasn't our role to understand before the fact. It was only our role to come to this understanding when we saw the resurrected Jesus. So if you believe Matthew's timeline, uh, within just the space of a few hours, Jesus had orchestrated and taught the fulfillment of scriptures from Isaiah 5, the vineyard uh, parable, Isaiah 6, Isaiah's first vision, Isaiah 52 and 53, that of the suffering servant, Daniel chapter 2, the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, Isaiah 8, the stone of stumbling or the rock of offense, Psalm 118 where it said, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord, and the stone that the builders refused. Um, Micah chapter 7 is one of the, the fruitless vines or fruitless fig tree imagery. Jeremiah 7, where he talks about the temple as the den of thieves. Genesis 49, 1 Samuel 9, 1 Samuel 16, and 1 Kings, where he talks about, uh, this is the, the, these are the scriptures that relate Jewish kings to donkeys and how they ride in on donkeys. And Zechariah chapter 9 is obviously the actual prophecy where it talks about him riding in on the donkeys. So Jesus has taken all of these scriptures, and in one day, probably several more that I haven't I've done my best to identify all of them that I can think of, but there's probably several more that I, I haven't identified. He's taken all these scriptures and fulfilled them in one day and shown. So this is irrefutable proof, if not that Jesus is the Messiah, certainly that he knows the scriptures better than any of the teachers of his time. And it would seem to be very good evidence that he's a likely candidate for the Messiah, that at least we should listen to him and consider his message. And if the Jewish leaders, if the Pharisees and scribes had done exactly that, they may have been converted. In fact, we have evidence that that many of them did believe on him, but were afraid to be put out of the synagogue. And so they, they weren't willing to put their support behind a Messiah who might fail. They didn't understand that Jesus was more than a Messiah. He was actually Messiah, Savior, and God himself. And as we read John, as we have subsequent readings to John, as we, as we go over it, we're meant to read John many times. Um, we recognize the symbols that were placed in Christ's hand. He was given a scepter. He was given a royal robe. He was given a crown of thorns. What more appropriate symbol could there be to both the suffering and the coronation of Jesus than a crown of thorns? It's the perfect symbol to show that when he was lifted up into his glory, he was also tortured and killed. That that was the very moment. So these were meant to be ironic symbols. And in fact, the Jews, the leaders of the Jews were upset when on his cross was placed a sign that said, Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, King of the Jews. They said, hey, that sign should say he said he was King of the Jews, but Pilate left it exactly as it was. And so all of these symbols were meant to be ironic, and they actually ended up being totally legitimate symbols of the royalty of Christ. And that he received that royalty in his crucifixion and death so that he might be resurrected and, and pull all men, lifted up, and then pull all men unto him. This is John's testimony. 
And John obviously saw him after he was resurrected. That became the strongest, the focal point about which he was able to go back and say, well, now I know that Jesus lived again. So where are the proofs of that in the scriptures? We have the same benefit. We don't have the disadvantage that all of Christ's uh, earthly disciples had, which was not knowing how this was going to turn out, having false expectations about what kind of ministry Jesus was involved in. We already know that Jesus was raised to his highest glory at the moment of his deepest suffering. And so, therefore, we can accept the testimony of John in, in showing us that in Jesus' death, he, he gained the crown that God had prepared for him from before the foundation of the world. And so that is the powerful message that is contained in the triumphal entry. Jesus was anointed, then he was received by his people, and then he exerted the power of a king. But the moment that he gained his deepest royalty was the moment that he suffered the most. When he exposed the governments of this world in all their hypocrisy and in all their evil and in all their barrenness, in the fact that they had not borne the fruit of right relationships. Jesus explained how this fruit would come about. If anyone is willing to hate his life, this, this kernel of wheat is going to fall to the ground, and in dying, it's going to bear much fruit. Jesus showed us how to bear fruit, and he asked us, please, hate your life on this earth so that you can bear much fruit. Now, when Jesus comes again, he's been in a far country receiving his kingship, for a certain amount of time, but when he comes again, we can either be found in the position of one of the servants who is willing to turn what we've been given. We've all been given the same amount, which is one life to live. And we can either turn that into a tenfold increase or a fivefold increase, or we can sit on it and do nothing with it, or we can refuse to accept him as our God at all. But in any case, the, the message of the fig tree is that the time will come when Jesus will arrive, and at that point he will expect there to be some fruit on the tree. And we don't want to be in the position of him having to declare, henceforth there will be no fruit coming from you forever, because the time for you to prepare for this day has already passed. What we want to do is be prepared for that day. He has told us how to bear fruit, and he has borne himself He has paid the ultimate price to bear all of the fruit, an infinite amount of fruit, which is all of us. So let us look to our relationships. First, between each other and those people that we love, or as Jesus taught, the people that we esteem to be our enemies, and then between ourselves and God, and make sure all of those relationships could be described as righteousness. This is the fruit that God desires. This is what we will carry with us when We are lifted up with Jesus into his glory. And if he comes back from his his journey to receive his, his throne and finds us bearing this kind of fruit, then we have been faithful over small things. He will put us over many. And this is the powerful message of the triumphal entry of Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.